everyone. My name is Al Getz, and welcome to another episode of the Charting the Territories podcast. Now, I'm here with my co-host. Well, actually, I'm not here with him. He has joined me through the magic of the interwebs, although in a couple of weeks, John, we will uh, be joining one another in person. We'll yeah, talk a little bit. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that later on in the podcast. But joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. John Boucher, who is suffering through a heat wave in New York. So I'm in Atlanta and he's in New York and it's a good, I think, 10 degrees hotter in New York, nine degrees hotter uh, in New York than it is in Atlanta right now. So, John, are, are you surviving the heat? Oh, yeah. It's it's just that that. You know that gross New York City heat too, with the humidity and the and the weird smells and the and the whole thing. Hot town. Well, it's very appropriate. I believe a hot summer in the city by the living blood living spoonful. The, the living spoonful was was <laughs> I don't know about that one. The uh, was released in I think the summer of 1966, maybe even July 1966, which would be a great segue. Yes, John, we're going to be talking about 1966. And Leroy McGurk's Oklahoma slash Louisiana wrestling territory, in particular, the third quarter of 1966, looking at the top stars, the top teams and the top feuds. And we'll talk about a cowboy who mastered the bulldog and a bulldog who mastered the boomerang. We'll also look at some out-of-the-ring exploits involving the aforementioned cowboy that actually led to a federal criminal indictment. We're going to talk a little bit about Ronnie Garvin's 1975 run in the McGurk Territory, discuss a couple of recent books that came out with wrestling-based plots, and we're going to discuss some new information we learned over the past month about Battleship Johnson. We actually heard, I heard from someone who's a former martial arts student of his. So we've got a lot more information on the man who wrestled very briefly in the mid-1960s as Battleship Johnson. And of course, all our usual features, including John Plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. This month I learned, and we kick things off with Shit John Bought Me off eBay. Mm-hmm. So this month, John bought me. Uh, keep in mind, John is authorized to spend approximately $50 of my money each and every month. And just to, to let our listeners know this isn't a scam, John, have I reimbursed you on a monthly basis for what you spend on eBay? Absolutely. Uh, yes, yes. It is, not a, right. it is not a very complicated... Uh, each yeah, and every a, month, I, I ask him what I owe him. And if it's even a penny over $50, I hem and haw and curse him out. But then I pay I, him anyway. It's You know what? The eBay now, ever since... And, and I know this has been happening for probably three years now. But since eBay started uh, you know, charging the tax and everything, I always, you, always, you get the tax at the end. You're like, ah, the tax. and the yeah. So it's, it's a, a tightrope walk sometimes. They get you with those unplanned expenses, uh, similar to when I buy something off StubHub, you know, to be like, oh, nineteen dollars, and then next thing you know, it's thirty six seventy two. Son of a yep, bitch! Yep. But this month, fifty dollars got me three trading cards from the nineteen fifty four nineteen fifty five Parkhurst wrestling trading card set. Uh, if you're not familiar, Parkhurst was a Canadian confectionery company headquartered in Toronto. And in the 1950s and early 60s, they produced trading cards, mostly for hockey, but dabbling in other sports as well. The 1954 
Parkhurst Wrestling Series was the first of two wrestling sets. The 1954 set had 75 cards in total. So let's take a look at who I have. I have cards for the Sharp Brothers. I have Mm -hmm. a card for Wild Bill Longson. And I have a card Mm -hmm. for Lou Newman. Now, Mm -hmm. interesting, and I'll post pictures of the cards on Twitter. So follow me at Al Gets Wrestling to see these. But the Sharp Brothers are pictured uh, enjoying some milk and bananas. Yes. Yep. Yep. Oranges, too. Maybe some grapes. Uh, was that orange? I couldn't tell. Some sort of fruit. Uh, oranges, grapefruit, something along those lines. I'm not, I'm not good at identifying fruit because I don't eat the shit. Um, now, on the other hand, someone I can get more along the lines with is the the picture of Wild Bill Longson, who is basically pictured pouring uh, a liquid through a funnel into a bottle marked with the universal symbol for poison. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, Wild Bill Longson is credited as the inventor of the pile driver. Mm-hmm. It's uh, on mm-hmm. the back. So uh, these are trading cards on the back. They have a little description. Uh, and in this case, since it was a Canadian set, uh, the descriptions is both in English and French. But here, former mm-hmm. champ Wild Bill Longson is known as one of the game's toughest competitors. He stands six feet tall, weighs about 240 pounds and knows most of the tricks of the trade. His favorite hold Hmm. is the pile driver, and he is famous Mm -hmm. for his habit of leaping over the top ropes out of the ring whenever the going gets too rough. Huh. Also, on this card, if I recall correctly, he also has a a scale with a pile of some mysterious white powder on it. Yes, he does. I was was so uh, (laughs) taken with the, the pouring of the poison liquid that I did not realize that, yes, there is a scale with some sort of uh, white powdery substance being measured. Do with that information as you will. So the Sharp Brothers are eating healthy. Wild Bill Longson is uh, plotting someone's demise. And in uh, direct opposition to both of those, Lou Newman is just sort of standing there looking at the camera. Looking like a beefy Colin Quinn, sort Looking of. Looking like a, yes, like a beefy Colin Quinn from MTV's Remote Control <laughs> and Saturday Night Live. You know, when I was a teenager, uh, I hosted a, a game show on local cable access in Long Island that was a ripoff Sorry, of what? Remote Control called wow. Out of Control. I was wow. the host. I was the Ken Ober character, and my friend <laughs> Robbie Reed was the Colin Quinn guy. Was there a Kari Wurr? There was. Uh, Dara oh. Meltzner was uh, oh, was portrayed that role. This was this was the the pre Jenny McCarthy era. I think this was the uh, that that came later. I think. Yeah. But Lou, um, on the description on the back of the card, it notes his very well known professional wrestling nickname. And John, what was Lou Newman's nickname? Oh, he's Shoulders Newman, who I I know it's one of your favorite nicknames. It is one of my favorites. Another one, uh, I guess I like body parts because one of my favorites is Jack (laughs) the Neck Vansky. The Neck. That's just, yeah, it's, what a great nickname that is. So is Shoulders Newman, you know, because it's a a body part most people don't often think of, you know, when describing a big beefy (laughs) uh, Colin Quinn lookalike wrestler. (laughs) But it worked for Lou Newman. I did, did. Yeah, so the third quarter of 1966, the summer of 66, when the loved spoonful may or may not have written Summer in the City 
Leroy McGurk's territory actually featured a lot of tag team matches in the summer. And this is probably due to the big run they had earlier in the year with the Assassins and the Kentuckians. Now, neither of those teams were here in the summer, and the regular heel team was the Medics. And this version of the Medics, one was definitely Tony Gonzalez, and the other we're not quite sure of. Some people think it's Donald Lorty, who teamed with Gonzalez regularly, but I believe Lorty is wrestling in Gulf Coast at the time. At the end of this run for the Medics, they're unmasked, and they're identified as Tony Gonzalez and Dan Ellis. But there's no other information on a wrestler with the rig name of Dan Ellis. So who knows? That's why they call them the Mysterious Medics, I guess. Yes, yes. Now, other heel teams in prominent spots on the card included Don Kent teaming with a couple of different wrestlers, uh, Chuck Carbo and Tor Kamada, primarily. And the babyface teams were all of the makeshift variety, including Danny Hodge and one half of the Kentuckians, Tiny Smith, as well as Battleship Johnson teaming up with both Jack Briscoe and Jerry Kozak. Now, Don Kent being part of a tag team is not surprising. From 1968 to 1974, he teamed with Al Costello as the third iteration and, and the second most famous iteration of the fabulous Kangaroos. But by that time, he'd already been wrestling for at least a decade and had numerous stints for Leroy McGurk during that time. Now, this particular stint started in April when he came here from Arizona and he'd stay through late August and then go to work for Crockett. And when he wasn't a member of the Kangaroos, John, he often used the nickname Bulldog. Yeah. So that's uh, two, two animal-based uh, you know, names, from a kangaroo to a bulldog. So, John, who would win in a fight between a kangaroo and a bulldog? I guess it, huh. I would have to go with kangaroos. Kangaroos seem kind of vicious with the, that little kick thing they yeah. have there. You know, that they could, they could seem they like the, they would get yeah, that would... Yeah, they, have, right the, the they have the size. The they have the size advantage too. So the reason I ask you this is because many years ago, uh, one of my uh, office jobs, we had a football pool, and the woman who won the pool knew nothing about football, and every single choice she made for who would win a game was based on who th the team names or the mascots and who she thought would win in a real fight between a giant and a buccaneer or a bear <laughs> and a lion. She literally okay. made every decision based on who she thought would win in those types of scenarios. And she ended up winning the office football pool. Wow. Yeah. So that just goes to show you, you don't need to know squat about football to win a pool. You just need to know about who would win fights between various animals and other mascots. Interesting. Now, Don what's the Kent, etiquette on the on the football pool? I got to talk to back up with this football pool. because I, I, I won the football pool once. Yeah, I think this, it was the Super Bowl. Did she buy the office like a, a big pizza lunch or something one day? Because that's what I did. And I thought that's what everybody did. But not everybody did that. I realized that years as the years went by, nobody else was buying me the pizza when they won. But I bought the whole office pizza when I won. Well, I thought this was something everyone did. When you're sitting in a, in a, in a room full of people and you can't figure out which one's the mark, John. <laughs> 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 that's because it's you. Yeah, yeah. I think you got yeah. got on that one. I got, yeah. Oh, oh well. Right. Okay. Well, 
Back to Don Kent. Back to Don Kent. So his real name was Leo Joseph Smith. And at times he was billed as Joe Smith when he teamed with Heffernan in, uh, sorry, when he teamed with Costello in Detroit. So Don was born on June 24th, 1933 at Fort Benjamin Harrison, which is a U.S. Army post in Harrison, Indiana. His father was a soldier. And he graduated from high school in Battle Creek, Michigan. He was recruited. I didn't know this, John. He was recruited by the Boston Red Sox as a catcher. Yeah. And we all know how much I hate the fucking Red Sox. Almost as much as I hate the fucking Mets. But (laughs) Don chose instead to go to St. Benedict's College in Kansas to play football. And he started his full-time wrestling career in 1956 or 1957. So, John, uh, so baseball-wise, who was your who? What team do you hate with a passion? Oh God! I mean, I I was raised a Yankees fan, so I have to hate the Red Sox as well. Um, okay. And and I you know and I, I think it's the, the the and even some of my other family members are 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 Mets fans. You know my cousins, but they 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 all we all come together for our collective hate of uh, of the Red Sox. Which right. is, and it's a shame because some of my closest friends are are Red Sox fans. Um, so no no reflection me. on the fans. Yeah, um, just the same team. with me. I, I, have a, I have a couple of yeah. friends down here who are originally from uh, the New England area who are big Red Sox fans, and you know. It's uh, I've been to one or two Yankee Red Sox games with one of those friends. And every time I've seen the Yankees play the Red Sox in person, the Red Sox have won. I think I've seen them three or four times. So not many, but the Red Sox seem to have the Yankees number when Al Getz is in attendance. Yeah, It's like where I grew up specifically. I grew up in in, in Connecticut and I'm from grew up in Stanford. So that. Sort of below that Merritt Parkway line is sort of like the, the dividing line, Route 15. Like if you're from below south of the Merritt, you're usually a Yankees or a Mets mm-hmm. fan. And if you're above, ooh, I hit my map. If you're above <laughs> the Route 15 line there, you're usually a, a Red Sox fan. So even within Connecticut, there's all sorts of strife. Now, in my case, I grew up on Long Island, so I'm supposed to be a Mets fan, but I, I, even all the other sports, I tended to like the city teams over the island teams. I liked the Giants and did not like the Jets. I liked the Rangers and did not like the Islanders. And I liked the Knicks. Um, and of course, there wasn't a Long Island basketball team at the time, although now I'm uh, more into the Brooklyn Nets than the New York Knickerbockers. Yeah. Yeah. Those, are, those are all my teams growing up, too. You and my dad would get along just swell. Excellent. So, John, you went ahead and uh, found some YouTube footage of Don Kent in action. And as always, we will post links to these on Twitter uh, shortly after this podcast comes out so you can follow along. But uh, first up, there was a match with the Kangaroos against uh, Ricky Hamilton and Prince Pullins from the WWA. Mm -hmm. Now, John, you were Mm -hmm. unsure of the year, but based on some cues in the commentary, I think... It's from 1969 or 1970. And this is interesting because Ricky Hamilton is basically an enhancement guy, but he's teaming with a wrestler who's not an enhancement guy, and that's Prince Pullins. 
And that's yeah. always sort of a weird deal when the, the TV matches a pushed entity teaming up against one pushed guy and one non-pushed guy. So tell us a little bit about this match. The, there were some fun little double team maneuvers at the end uh, yeah, yeah, of yeah, the yeah, match. Yeah. So, uh, But talk, tell our listeners a little <laughs> bit about the Kangaroos versus Pullins and Hamilton. The yeah, Ricky Hamilton sort of he looks like he looks like less of a wrestler and more like he's about to either uh, steal your jukebox money or your or your girlfriend or Slim Jim Phantom's job or something. It looks like he's ready to play some upright bass or something. He's got the pompadour. Uh, and Al Costello, he's great to watch. He's he, he's a lot of like cool like little takedowns, like rolling leg takedowns and stuff. Um, Bob Luce is on commentary or makes a reference to uh, Prince Pullins being friends with actor William Holden from Bridge on the River Kwai, which is very funny. Um, and the kangaroos are really good at the doing the heel tag team thing where, you know, they're the heels. And it's very clear that they are the superior scientific wrestlers, um, better in-ring technicians than their babyface opponents. And they could beat them very easily without having to break the rules. But they still take such delight in breaking the rules. And I, I love that so much in the TV tag team enhancement matches. And you said like the finish is a cool double team finish where I was a Costello, I think the slingshots, Ricky yeah. Hamilton slingshot and into then a Bears backdrop. Yeah. Into a backdrop. It's, it's really fun and neat to see. And like you said, they exhibit very good professional wrestling, but at the same time, you know, they, they heels got to heal. So they have to yeah. throw that in there as well. It's a, a fun little match. And then after that, we have a uh, match from the Ghoulis Territory. And this is Don Kent teaming up with Chris Gallagher against mm -hmm. George Ghoulis and Tojo Yamamoto. Listeners, if you don't know who Chris Gallagher is, I almost don't want to spoil it for you. But I, I assure you, you'll know who he is instantly. And you won't even have to see his face. You could tell from his back. <laughs> Who he is. So, yeah. John, who is Chris Gallagher? It's a, it's a young, dirty Dutch mantel right there. Uh, yeah, yeah, young Dutch. Yeah, and he's still, oh my God, is he hairy? Uh, <laughs> oh my God, he's, he's even, I, I don't know, maybe it's just the lighting in the, uh, the, the Huntsville Arena, but it's, he just looks so, so damn hairy. This match, this match is probably more enjoyable for the hair. And as historical footage than it is as a as a as a as a match, it's not that enjoyable of a match per se. But it is cool seeing, you know, this footage from '74. Yeah, from some old some old Alabama. Dutch footage, some Huntsville footage. I've got to say, it's been a while since I've watched uh, George Goulas footage. Mm -hmm. Same here. Um, you know, he's he's bad. Uh, everything he does looks awkward. Looks like someone uh, pretending to be a pro wrestler. Uh, he's got oh, size. Yeah. He absolutely he has size. Uh, his look isn't horrible. Like most of the pictures you see of Goulas make him look frumpy and, and boring. But in, in the ring, he's not that bad. But just everything he does doesn't look good. And, and you know, the key to being a good professional wrestler is to know what you do well. And more importantly, to know what you don't do well and don't do it. And in the case of George, either he didn't learn that lesson or he realized there was nothing he did well and he did everything poorly. So he just kind of had no choice but to do it. Yeah, his his punches just like throw me off so, 
so wildly. Yeah. It's like, what, what, what are these? How, especially in Memphis, right. where you, like, you have all these guys that are known for these fucking great realistic looking punches. I mean, nobody just did, like, I, I did no one sit down with him and be like, hey, here's how you do this. So just like, oh, he's, he's the boss's kid. We got to let him, you know, I, yeah. I just wonder just, how. Yeah, they just, they didn't, they didn't try. And, and, you know, Tojo's about half the size of Ghoulis, but, but <laughs> everything he does looks, you know, 10 times awesome. better. Yeah. He's chopping. These guys are bumping their asses off. These little chops. It's like chop, chop, chop. But they're flying all over the ring for him. It's great. Yeah. So <laughs> aside from these two bouts, there's a couple other matches that John found. We'll post links to all four of them on Twitter. Uh, one of them is a handheld footage, handheld footage with no sound from Detroit of Kent teaming up with Ripper Collins versus Abdullah the Butcher and Gino Hernandez in one of those yeah. wacky random name for people who have never been in my kitchen matches. And and there's <laughs> yeah. also a singles match featuring Kent wrestling Alec Gerard in Montreal in 1978. So we'll mm-hmm. post links to all four of those matches on YouTube. Now, John, later on in this podcast, I'm going to quiz your wrestling knowledge, but it's time now to test your knowledge of local children's television programs. Oh, yeah. So, John, (laughs) what was the longest running kids TV show in Phoenix, Arizona? Oh, well, this as as luck would have it, I believe it was Wallace and Ladmo. Yes. uh, Which our, our friend Don Kent this is one of the most interesting non-wrestling related events of his life. Um, the character he played on the show went by the name of Mr. Bullethead. Uh, and I was lucky enough to find a, a, a group cast photo where you get a, a little bit of a glimpse of Kent as Mr. Bullethead. This was in the early 60s. I think, I think this was right. He wrapped up his time as Mr. Bullethead right before this run in, 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 in McGurk for McGurk. Um, so sadly, I couldn't find any video of Mr. Yeah. Bullethead, but there's, there's I, I some later episodes. Was he a regular character or was this for just for a couple of skits? I don't know if he, I, I, I don't know. I, okay. I, I can't find him on any, there's a, there's a quite a few Wallace and Ladmo, you know, fan sites, tribute sites, and I can't find any mention of him on any of those. So it leads me to believe that he was just, you know, not a not a, a regular every every week cast member, just maybe on every right. every now and then. Okay. Um, but the show but went on there, for I think thirty five years, and it aired for most of that time five days a week live. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think that it, makes it, it the longest running episodic television show, uh, even more <laughs> so than uh, Monday Night Raw. Wallace and Ladmo out of Phoenix, Arizona, <laughs> featuring Mr. Bullethead, portrayed by professional yep. wrestler Don Kent. Indeed. Now, besides the There's wrestlers... Some later episodes. Oh, what's up? Later episodes up on YouTube. There's some later episodes okay. up on YouTube if anybody wants to watch some Walls and Lead. <laughs> if you want to see what the kids in Phoenix, Arizona were being exposed to uh, through their uh, local television channels. Now, besides the wrestlers we've already mentioned, uh, the medics... Danny Hodge, Jack Briscoe, Don Kent, Tor Kamada, Chuck Carbo, Battleship Johnson, Jerry Kozak, and Tiny Smith. Other wrestlers appearing in the upper half of the cards in the summer of 1966 in Oklahoma and Louisiana and the surrounding areas included Babyface's Cowboy Bob Ellis, 
and Mike Clancy, and heels Nikita Malkovich, Chris Tolis, Bob Orton, Sr., obviously, and George Tuton Harris. Now, you can see the full roster, including their week-to-week spot ratings for all the regulars in the territory, on our blog at www.chartingtheterritories.com. Now, in the case of Cowboy Bob Ellis, well, first, it's interesting that we have Bob Orton Sr., whose son would wrestle as Cowboy Bob Orton, here at the same time as Cowboy Bob Ellis. Ellis was only here for a few weeks, and he came in as part of yet another attempt by Leroy McGurk to run shows in New Orleans. Now, the first time they tried that was in 1961, when they actually tried running several cities in Louisiana. After a couple of months, they scaled back and kept running Shreveport and Monroe, which were in the northern uh, and the northwestern part of the state. But every now and then, they'd try to run New Orleans again. And the reason why Ellis was brought in at this time was because several years earlier, Ellis and Dick the Bruiser once drew 5,000 fans for a show promoted by Joe Gunther in New Orleans. So they're trying to recreate that magic. As a matter of fact, the very first Superdome show in 1975 featured Dick the Bruiser as he wrestled Abdullah the Butcher in a uh, sort of special match on the first Superdome show. So Dick the Bruiser and Cowboy Bob Ellis not only had a legendary feud in the WWA and the surrounding areas, but it actually stretched all the way to New Orleans. Um, I'm sure there's YouTube footage of Ellis versus Dick the Bruiser, but John, you found some footage uh, with Bob against quite the cross-section of opponents. We've got three matches. First, I'm going to talk about a match from the very tail end of Ellis's career, and it's from Southwest Championship Wrestling, and it's Bob versus Dale Valentine. Now, Dale is Buddy Roberts. Um, Johnny Valentine had retired, uh, of course, after the 1975 plane crash, and he was uh, going to book in Texas. He was in Florida, and he told Buddy Roberts that uh, he was going to be booking in Texas, and he wanted him to come in as his protege. So for a uh, one-year period or so in first in big-time wrestling and then in Southwest, Buddy wrestled as Dale Valentine. So this match, this is Southwest Championship Wrestling, and I know a lot of Southwest has recently been unearthed and put up on YouTube by Crispy Lettuce, uh, Twitter oh, yeah. user you, Chris P. Lettuce. Uh, but tell us about this 1978 or 79 match with Cowboy Bob versus Dale Valentine. We got, we got Bronco Lubitsch out of the ref, which is always a good sign. Uh, and if Ellis, because they're in, they're, in, you know, they're in Texas here, Ellis has a vaquero on the back of his tights, which is a nice little nod uh, to his name there. Ellis does some pretty slick moves here for a guy of his age, like some cool like go behinds and the drop toe holds and stuff. Like I wasn't expecting that out of uh, 1978-79 Bob Ellis. Yeah, um, doesn't set the world on fire, it, it, but he's uh, doing no. more than than you thought. <laughs> yeah, and these guys seem more or less like evenly matched throughout most most of the match here. And Valentine doesn't really do uh, any overly sort of heelish tactics until the very end of the match sort of an interesting finish where ellis hits uh his finisher the running bulldog hits one of them then he goes for another one valentine blocks it by like hooking you know hooking the ropes with his arms ellis breaks the hold 
Uh, and then Valentine scoops his legs out, puts them in a figure four, uh, and Valentine is under the ropes. And then the announcer says that Bronco Lubitsch like, counted Valentine out. I don't know if that means he's counted out of the ring or DQ'd for not breaking think, on the five count. Yeah, I think that's what, what it was. I think it was a five count for... Break uh, it. Either way, Ellis, Ellis is the winner, but it's a interesting, interesting finish there. Uh, I, you know, I tell you, John, the more I look at old wrestling results and sort of read the descriptions, there's some finishes that just, you know, don't make a whole lot of sense to us today. And and I think the important thing yeah. to realize, particularly for house shows, really, the fans didn't necessarily care about the box score, about who the announcer said was the winner, so so much as who stood tall at the end. Uh, I know in the 60s, a lot of the McGurk main events would have finishes where the heel would pin the baby face, but then after the match continued to attack them, and so the referee would reverse the decision. Which just seems weird, but again, it's just a way uh, to keep the heat going, but have the baby face be announced as the winner to get that pop. Uh, from that, but but to keep the heat going for a rematch. So, you know, when, you, when you're running weekly, there's only so many, you know, really, really good creative finishes you can do. So a lot of times you just have to go with the standard, you know, here's a DQ, here's a reverse decision. Let's, you know, let's just, you know, figure out a way to get them back next week. Uh, another match you found involving Cowboy Bob was from Chicago in 1973. You mentioned Bob Luce earlier. We've got more Luce for you. But this is about five minutes of clipped footage with Cowboy Bob Ellis versus Ernie Ladd with uh, commentary added, you know, after the fact by Bob Luce. And he's he's on a roll in, in his commentary on this one. Oh, he's talking about how he's a, a cowboy Bob Ellis is a rodeo star. It's great. Like it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, there's not a lot to, to, to say about this. <laughs> really. I mean, it's cowboy, Bob, cowboy Bob Ellis versus Ernie Ladd with Bob Luce. So it's like, you know what, you know what you're going to get. Yeah. If, if, clips, if like, that in sounds interesting to you, watch it. If it doesn't, you know, if you're not intrigued no. by <laughs> any of those three names, then don't watch it. But I, I assure you, you'll want to watch the next match that John found. First, this is Cowboy um, Bob Ellis versus Bobby Heenan in front of a rabid, hot crowd. And yep. Heenan is just a fucking madman in this, bumping like crazy. I, certainly seeing this and realizing how many nights a week he did things like this for however many years, you can understand why he didn't want anyone touching his neck, uh, you know, 20 <laughs> years later. But, you know, this is a great match. And, and you know, Heenan is... He's in that sort of player-coach role that Buck Robley was in years later, where he's a manager, but he's also portrayed as a competent wrestler. This isn't the, mm-hmm. finally, Ellis gets his hand on the Weasley runaway. Uh, Heenan, if he isn't presented as Ellis's equal, he's presented as competent. And of course, Heenan, you know, uses every heel trick in the books. It's really, the layout of this match is so simple. It's just a whole bunch of gaga but the crowd is going gaga for the gaga. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's really a, and it's like really like it, uh, it's a master class on working like the the donut hole gimmick by Bobby yeah. Heenan. Yep. You know the way he just he's got the oh it's so great. And like I had the you said the 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 crowd is rabid. That's exactly what I had in my notes. The crowd is rabid in their desire 
to see Bobby Heenan get get destroyed. And Ellis Ellis has this really dark tan hair, and he's got the black wig, so he looks like Cannonball Run era Dean Martin kind of in this in this clip for me. Um, but Heenan is just so good working working the donut hole thing, and Bob is selling the donut hole thing like like he's being blinded and he's swinging wildly at almost hitting the referee because he's blind. You know, it's like, such yeah, a, you know, for, for that, is actually working this really well too. For Heenan's shtick to work, the babyface has to be willing yeah. to, you know, sell and, and look vulnerable, which a lot of times doesn't happen when a wrestler is working a manager. But the, like I said, the way that Heenan's portrayed, he's not, uh, he's not the weasel yet. He's not the, the weaselly manager that's running away. He's just, uh, he knows that he's beneath Ellis. So he's pulling out every trick in the book to uh, try and get the advantage. So it's a really, really fun match. And the crowd just makes it so much better. The, they're just eating everything up. And it's crazy because Heenan, this wasn't like a thing where it was a six month. I don't think it was a six month build where he couldn't get his hands on Heenan. Heenan's wrestling, if not, every night regularly enough yeah. that this isn't a special thing. So to hear this yeah. crowd reacting, especially since Heenan is taking these bumps, but he was so bulletproof, he could come back and, you know, the next week and they'd still want to see him get his ass kicked even after he got it kicked. Yep. That's yep. just such it's great, great like, stuff. Oh, it's great. This is a really good match. I highly recommend it. If you watch any of these Cowboy Bob Ellis matches, watch this one. It's great. These guys just know exactly what they're doing. They know what they they know what their strengths are and just played played to them for for ten yeah. minutes. I don't even think is there even a wrestling move in this match besides a lockup. It's just it's great. Yeah, it's who needs who needs wrestling moves? <laughs> it's, it's 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 crazy. It's so good. There's a lot that has been written about the in ring career of Cowboy Bob Ellis. And for a good summary, uh, I recommend checking out uh, Tim Hornbaker's site, LegacyOfWrestling.com. He's got a profile of Cowboy Bob Ellis listing some of his major accomplishments, titles held, so on and so forth. And the last line of Hornbaker's profile of Cowboy Bob Ellis simply states, When it was time to walk away from the business, Ellis retired to his ranch. However... There is more to the story of Cowboy Bob Ellis. Now, John, you know, when you and I are doing this podcast, a lot of times we find things out about wrestlers that we don't think have ever been told in wrestling circles before, or at the very least, aren't well known. In particular, the story of Junkyard Dog being expelled from high school and being uh, originally part of a lawsuit brought forth by the NWACP. I think Thunderbolt Patterson's pre-wrestling run-ins with the law and also Mm -hmm. finding out the real, real name of Count Drummer, which we talked about last Mm -hmm. month. I think all three of those are things that have never been documented in wrestling circles. And while I was doing some research for this month's podcast, I thought I found another one. It turns out it's a story that some of our listeners may know about, but I'm pretty sure not all of them do. And even if you've heard it before, we actually dug deep and found some new details that have never been reported before in wrestling circles. Before we get into the story to our listeners, I would say this. If uh, if I asked, have you heard of the Cowboy Bob Ellis horse race fixing saga? Would you know what I was talking about? So you just answer that uh, to yourselves. But John, when I found the story and brought it to you, you had heard about it but you weren't sure where you had heard it from. So yeah. uh, we yeah. we did a little digging and 
Basically, it's mentioned briefly on some random message forums and other websites online, but there's not much in the way of details given. And the most thorough mention of the incident comes from Stephen Johnson and Greg Oliver's book, Heroes and Icons, which is a part of their Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame series of books. And it includes some quotes from Ellis. But basically, what Cowboy Bob Ellis did, uh, him and I think six other individuals uh, all worked together. They took a four-year-old horse, a racehorse named Gallant Viking, who had raced previously and actually won a few races, and substituted him and passed him off as a three-year-old horse named Data Up and entered the horse in uh, rookie races for uh, un, you know, previously unraced three-year-olds. And Gallant Viking, uh, being a year older and more experienced than all these other horses, uh, won at least one of the races. Now, because the horse was transported across state lines, and because there was willful forging of documents submitted to multiple state agencies, it ended up being a federal case. And Ellis and six other individuals were indicted. Uh, I mean, the FBI was looking in this case. It was it was a big deal. The um, potential sentencing was up to 30 years in jail, although I believe only one person actually served time. Now, in Johnson and Oliver's book, Bob Ellis was quoted as saying, we were just running horses. It wasn't a fixed race. We'd put in a better horse under another name. It was the wrong thing to do. It was just a sideline something to do for kicks, and everybody else was doing it. <laughs> now, that statement sure makes it sound like it's no big deal, and that Ellis didn't think it was a big deal, but I don't believe that's true. As a matter of fact, Ellis did not appear for the trial, which took place in Rochester, New York. We'll post uh, some newspaper articles we found, and we'll post these on Twitter, but basically an article from the UPI, was uh, printed in numerous newspapers on October 11th, 1984, discussing the trial, which took place in Rochester, New York. And this article named Ellis as a fugitive sought by federal authorities. And defense attorneys at the time said that Ellis was believed to be in South America. (laughs) Now, whether that's true or not, we'll likely never know, but... He did not appear for the trial, so clearly, you know, he thought it was a bigger deal than he may have let on years later in the interview he did with for Johnson and Oliver's book. Now, I did do some digging. I actually spoke with a uh, a clerk at one of the federal uh, clearing houses for old court cases. Um, I wasn't able to get my hands on the entire case, but I did get my hands on uh, the indictment and some other paperwork. And what we learned was that in April of 1986, so this is about a year and a half after the trial, Ellis was convicted on one count of conspiracy to transport false certificate of full registration and sentenced to three years probation plus fined $1,000, with the other counts being dismissed. So he was sentenced to three years probation, fined $1,000. Now, Ellis said... He was let off of his probation halfway through after about a year and a half, and that it may have been due to the probation officer having been a big wrestling fan. <laughs> yeah, I think he says the, he got real lenient is what he's. Yeah, he got thing. real lenient. So, so, John, <laughs> do you know anything about the world of horse racing? 
I know nothing about yeah, horse so, racing. I know you, horse racing used to be on before wrestling at midnight on Channel 9 in 1982 <laughs> or 3. That's I remember I, that too. Or that w, might WWOR. Harness racing, maybe. Harn- I don't know the difference between harness racing and horse racing, aside from the fact that there's a harness involved in one of them. Um, but yeah, the, <laughs> so obviously uh, the difference in speed of a four-year-old horse that has already raced is much greater than that of a three-year-old. And so while I don't believe that anyone was betting on this, you know, substitute horse to win, as one of the owners of the horse, when the horse won the race, the owners make money. So there, you yeah. know, that, that's how, you know, this, this is kind of a big deal. Uh, there may have been, you know, some, some betting going on with people, you know, who are in the know that the fix was in, uh, but realistically the big issue was that these owners knowingly you know submitted a over you know an experienced horse and therefore were you know going to make money based off the horse winning the race that they you know shouldn't have so there's a couple of minor twists to this story that have not been reported in wrestling circles so first john i found a 1990 article in the daily oklahoma newspaper out of oklahoma city and this 1990 article places Cowboy Bob Ellis in Ardmore, Oklahoma in 1985. Yep. It's an article about a sheltered workshop, which is a term that was used to describe an entity that employs workers with disabilities. And this article, the woman that uh, founded this sheltered workshop noted that Bob Ellis had, start, had helped start the workshop when he was on the staff of a group home in Oklahoma in 1985, and the group home was threatened with being shut down by state regulators unless they made work programs available to their residents. Hmm. So while defense attorneys thought in 1984 that he was in South America, it is entirely possible that in 1985 he was working sort of under the radar at a group home. And it kind of reminds me of Harrison Ford's portrayal of Richard Kimball in the fugitive where he's, he can't have a quote unquote real job, but he's, you know, working and helping people. I kind of feel like that's what Ellis was doing here. He was laying low, but he was still doing good. Now it's also possible that in this 1990 article, Someone got their dates wrong, and perhaps hmm. instead of 1985, it was 1986, and that working at the group home may have been part of Ellis's probation. I think yeah, that's, yeah, that's a I small possibility and, and worth noting. So, again, it's possible that the story of him being a fugitive and hiding in South America was not true. We have a little evidence that points towards it being slightly unlikely. The second twist to this story is far more interesting, John. Remember, Ellis said that what he did with Gallant Viking was not a big deal and that everybody was doing it. Well, it may have seemed that way to him because he himself (laughs) did it on at least one occasion several years earlier. I found an article in the February 2nd, 1975 Indianapolis Star And it says that Ellis was suspended indefinitely from racing two of his horses in Kentucky for running a ringer horse. And similar to the gallant Viking incident, this was another example of an experienced four-year-old racehorse entering a rookie race for three-year-olds. Now, in this article in 1975, Ellis said it was a mistake 
that he had sent someone to Texas to pick up the three-year-old, but that this person accidentally returned with the wrong horse. Yeah. So yeah. was it an innocent mistake? But. Well, <laughs> but. according but. to state racing steward Art Hebel, the four-year-old uh. horse had been dyed with some kind of varnish and her spots were all removed from her feet and face. <laughs> which sure sounds like an intentional attempt to pass one horse yeah. off as another, which would make it uh, not no. an innocent mistake. No, Once a worker, no. John, always a worker. That's, I mean, okay, going back to the, the group home thing, which when I, when you sent me that article, I'm reading that article and I was like, ah, it seems like such an altruistic pursuit for someone who was involved in fixing horse races, you know, two years beforehand. You know, like 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 you said, the the romantic idealist in me wants to believe that this was his attempt at, you know, atoning for past improprieties. While the cynic in me is thinking just that, this dude is a this dude is a worker who has frankly is spoken very flippantly openly but flippantly about his his misdeeds and what's what's the angle he try <laughs> he must have an angle with this thing you know <laughs> who knows yeah, again knows. you know we we don't know the real story but at the very least we've we've offered some more context and uh if you hadn't heard about cowboy bob ellis's uh, horse race fixing scandal in the early 80s again we'll post some of these articles and some court documents that i found um and again Whatever you may think about it, let's be clear, it happened before, and he was involved in it years earlier. And if he was caught doing something two times, how many times do you think he actually did it without being caught? That's the eternal question, and we'll never know the answers. So uh, we just give you the info we have and let our listeners fill in the blanks, whether you choose to believe he was altruistic and just made two mistakes in his life, or if you want to believe something else Nothing I can tell you will change your mind one way or the other from what you believe. So we mentioned Ellis uh, having been brought in as part of Leroy's latest attempt to run New Orleans. He worked the first show that McGurk ran in 1966 in New Orleans, facing Don Kent in the semi-main event to a very unique main event, a rare babyface versus babyface match. Uh, which didn't happen a whole lot in the South in the 1960s or in the Midwest. Or I, I don't even know what to call Oklahoma. It's not the South. It's not the Midwest. I, you know, it's sort of its own little region. And the fact that the territory does extend into Louisiana, which does make it part of the South, uh, you know, it's really hard to, to quantify Leroy's sprawling large territory geographically. But anyway, something that didn't happen a lot in these here parts. A babyface first babyface match with Danny Hodge defending the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title against Jack Briscoe. Now, the two had been facing one another all over the territory during the summer. It was far and away the biggest feud in the territory in the summer of 1966. And using our new FLW stat, the feud length in weeks, their feud had an FLW score of 3.97 weeks. And I, while I haven't measured FLW for every feud in the history of wrestling, and I probably never will. I have done it for a good chunk of McGurk's territory uh, between 1959 and 1986. Not the entire run, but more than half of it. And this feud, I think, ended up in the top 
11 or 12 biggest feuds as measured by FLW. So that gives you an idea of how big it was. And what's interesting about this one, in most towns, it was only a two-match series. In some towns, it went three matches. But for the most part, it's a two-match series with the first match going to a time limit draw. And then the third fall, uh, sorry, and then the rematch uh, would have Hodge retaining usually by pinfall. But sometimes um, there was an injury uh, during the match and uh, whichever wrestler did not get injured would refuse to accept the victory per se. Uh, But, you know, that that was how they wrapped up the feud with a show of sportsmanship between the two. But what's unique about this feud for the era is that it hit all the McGurk towns, or at least all the regular weekly towns that I have records for. If you recall, at this point in time, they're running shows in sort of a northern loop around Tulsa, Oklahoma City, Little Rock, Springfield, and then a sort of a southern loop with uh, Shreveport and Monroe and Wichita Falls. But this feud went to all the towns. It started in the the northern cities, but it eventually made its way to Bob Clay's towns of Wichita Falls, Texas, and Fort Smith, Arkansas, as well as the Louisiana towns of Shreveport, Monroe, and of course now New Orleans. So while we don't have much in the way of attendance figures for this territory, the whole point of the FLW stat is that if a match drew well, they're going to do it again if they can. And thus matches with a higher FLW score, that's probably an indication that the feud drew well, especially if they bring it to every town in the circuit. It's one thing if it does well in one town and they run it three or four weeks in a row in that town, but when it's clicking enough that they, you know, even after the run finished in Tulsa, Oklahoma City, and Little Rock, still a month or, you know, even a month and a half later, they're now bringing it down to Shreveport and Monroe. That tells you that they they felt strongly it would draw well based on what it drew in the other towns. Yeah, I love the, uh, you know, even though the baby face versus baby face thing, which rarely happened, but the uh, like the Oklahoma, Oklahoma State rivalry yeah. element is kind of cool to have it there, too. That's that that couldn't couldn't have hurt the that's another thing. Uh, th- and there was a big rivalry uh, between those two schools. And, you know, one of the interesting things when you talk about both men's collegiate careers, um, Jack Briscoe was torn when trying to decide what college to go to because Hodge, um, of course, went to the University of Oklahoma. And for that reason, Briscoe was strongly considering also going to the University of Oklahoma, but ended up choosing Oklahoma State. And the rivalry between the two schools is known locally as the Bedlam Series. And huh. it's not just football, it's also a uh, crossover into basketball and wrestling and pretty much every sport. There was a big rivalry between Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. And what's interesting, the uh, wrestling feud between the two schools was actually quite lopsided with Oklahoma State as of this past year having won 147 meets between the two schools with the University of Oklahoma only winning 27 and 10 draws. So a very lopsided feud between the two schools as wrestling programs, but it uh, crossed over into the pro wrestling world with the University of Oklahoma um, standing tall at the end as Hodge, uh, of course, retained the title. Uh, in these matches with Briscoe. And you can see all of the known matches for this feud on our blog in the Anatomy of a Feud section 
of our look at the third quarter of 1966. Of course, our blog is at www.chartingtheterritories.com. Now, another big feud in this territory, also over the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title, took place several years later, and that was between Ronnie Garvin and Ken Mantell. In 1975. And, you know, John, when you think of Ronnie Garvin, do you think of light heavyweight, junior heavyweight? I I don't. I sure don't. Not at all. But he was. Uh, In fact, he was brought in to Leroy's territory pretty much specifically to be uh, positioned as a challenger to Ken Mantell and the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title. I think... More than half of his matches in the territory in 1975, um, he was opposite the ring of uh, Mantel, mostly in singles, but some tag matches as well. I'm, I'm looking it up right now. We have this on our blog as our latest Stats 101 feature, where we look at Garvin's complete run in the territory. So we have records for 98 house shows that Garvin was booked on in an 18-week period of time. And on 42 of those shows, Mantell was on the opposite side of the ring. So a little less than half, but close to half. And to give you a frame of reference, no other opponent had more than nine matches against Garvin. Oh, wow. So, yeah, he he clearly was brought in solely to feud with Mantell. And there's an interesting thing in some of the results from his matches, in particular a match he had with Pat O'Connor. And this is part of my why I don't really put much stock in pro wrestling results as as a significant statistic. Um, O'Connor was brought into Tulsa in May to wrestle Ronnie Garvin, who was being built up as a potential challenger for Ken Mantell. The match went to a time limit draw. And later in the card, O'Connor substituted for, I believe it was Danny Hodge, in the main event tag team match. So I think that originally O'Connor was brought in to put Garvin over to help build Garvin up as a challenger for a world title. But uh-huh. because O'Connor was the only wrestler that could have substitute that could have been a suitable sub for Danny Hodge, they couldn't have him lose. But they didn't want Garvin to lose either, thus they booked this time limit draw. And then O'Connor came back later in the in the show. I don't know this to be factually accurate, but it seems like that was the case. So in that case, the result is meaningless because it likely wasn't the planned result. And because of Hodge not appearing, they had to change the booking on the fly. Yeah. I have another another question. That you may not know the answer to, Ronnie Garvin question. All right, but I would love fine. to hear your, your your theory about this. Um, also on, on on the blog in this post, you mentioned that when uh, Ronnie Garvin was there in '65, mm-hmm. um, after teaming with Terry Garvin in Gulf Coast, Terry came to work for McGurk, um, and Leroy ended up using Ronnie uh, as like an enhancement guy on TV. But he wouldn't book him on the house shows. Why? Why? What is? What would be the reasoning, the logic for having him on TV as an enhancement guy, but not booking him on house shows? In this was what sixty five. He is. Yeah. He had just turned twenty. He was uh, inexperienced. I think he'd been wrestling for three years, but I don't know that he's wrestling full time for much of that time. 
Uh, I, it just might have been, it also might have been a numbers game. Uh, McGurk didn't have uh. a large crew. He might have only needed one. And Terry figured he'd bring Ronnie along because A, they were traveling everywhere. And B, because maybe, uh, you know, Leroy would, upon seeing him, give him a shot. Uh, you know, yeah. I don't know of a specific reason, but if I had to hazard a guess, that'd be what it was. He was just a little too young and inexperienced to, uh, especially since Terry was pushed, maybe he felt that yeah. Ronnie was not a suitable partner for Terry yeah. because of his, his inexperience. Whereas when they're working in Gulf Coast, uh, the, the talent level there is lower and, and Garvin is probably a, a better fit teaming with Terry yeah. in a place like Gulf Coast. So that's my guess. Okay. Cool. I was just very cur- curious yeah. about why that, why you thought that might be cool. Thank you. Yeah, you know, there, and there could be other reasons as well. Uh, you never know if any of our listeners know. I know my good friend Bo James uh, knows Garvin very well, so perhaps that's a question he could ask him. Oh. So you asked me a question, and now I'm going to ask you three. Ooh, baby. Because it's time for John Plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. So, John, I'm going to ask you three questions from Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia Game, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to allow you one lifeline. Uh, if if you have have trouble with any of the three questions, uh, you just ask for a lifeline, and I'll give you a hint. Okay. So good. we'll start with the first question. What is Dusty Rhodes's hometown? I believe Bill Rez being from Austin, Texas. Correct. Correct. All right. Good. Good job. One for one. All right. Question number two. What former five-time NWA champion died on August 7th, 1966 at the age of 76? Five-time champion died in 1966 at the age of 76. I, I'm, can I use my lifeline for this one? You can use your lifeline. Um, okay. His death was not caused by strangulation. Ed Strangler Lewis? <laughs> Correct. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that excellent hint. All right. I can't believe now, I blanked on that. Wow. Now, John, you oh. used your lifeline after question number two, which I'll admit oh, no. was a tough one. But what if I knew that? Yeah. And purposely order the questions in such a way that you'd feel you needed to use your lifeline there. And now the third question is really, really, really tough and you're screwed. See? This is all the calculus of hints. But let's see what see what see what happens. Question number three. Which wrestler owned and operated a famous Boston wrestling school? Remember, this game was published in the uh, mid-1980s. Yeah. 
Bet you wish you had that lifeline now, didn't you? Ew, wow. Any, let me, give me, give me. I thought that, I'm sorry, I thought this was an easy one. Looks like we have stumped John for the first time in a couple of months. Yeah, I know. What is it with me today? You know, it's all the cheese I ate. I had a lot of, I had a lot of cheese, a lot of dairy before the show. I think it's clogging, uh, clogging not only my arteries, but my... Uh, well, you know, they say cheese has that one hormone that really gets you, the HHH hormone, the triple H hormone. <laughs> yeah, uh, I yeah, I just mentioned that. But back to the question: Which wrestler oh, owned and operated it, a famed it, Boston it, wrestling school? Is it is it is it Killer Kowalski? Yes. Wow. Even though our know. listeners I, I, may think I gave you a hint there, I I clearly did not. I was just talking about cheese. I don't know what you're thinking. I wow, I wow, I, I you know what? I wasn't. Yeah, I was. I just I just blanked. I like I know that. I, I know that. I just blanked. Wow. I was thinking like, I was th- going back even further. I was like, who is the guy who's Les Thatcher trained with? Right. Um, it's, it's also uh, hard because, you know, wrestling schools in the mid eighties weren't necessarily a, a pub, you know, public knowledge. So for it to be in this, in this game, you're thinking it was probably from years earlier, even though it was actually a current school in 1986. Uh, so I, I oh, understand wow. why I had trouble with that one, but uh, yeah, so I will call that a half, half correct because i had to i had to thank you for, read you thank you for the good hints yeah so you got two and a half out of three not bad as john once again plays gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia so we finished the question and answer session now i guess it's time for our book reports oh yeah because over the last few months john two separate works of fiction came out where where their stories about uh murder one actual murder one potential murder both set in the world of uh professional wrestling so the first one is uh how to ace your comeback by david gibb and the second is called living the gimmick by bobby matthews so we'll start first with david gibb's how to ace your comeback now gibb writes uh for i believe it's the wrestling estate website he published this book uh, earlier this year you know, when comparing it to the last book review we did, which I think was Bob Roop's book, Deathmatch. If you remember, what I said about Roop's book was Roop is obviously a very intelligent man and well-spoken, but the book was written in such a way that you couldn't help but realize that every damn sentence. <laughs> it, it's, it's, I think I said at the time, it reminded me of the episode of Friends where Joey... I had to write a letter of recommendation and uh, they showed him how to use the thesaurus function on his uh, computer. <laughs> so he used the thesaurus <laughs> on every single word. And yeah, that's yeah. what a lot of Roop's writing felt to me now. But I do want to give you an example of how you can, you know, use a varied vocabulary, but still, you know, have, but have it come out nice. And that is the opening paragraph of David Gibbs book, How to Ace Your Comeback. So the opening paragraph. You know what success smells like? It's new boots, $100 bills, and Coke that's never been stored in anybody's mouth or asshole. It's good whiskey in your mustache and good silk on your balls. It's a freshly dry clean suit, free cologne from a fancy club, and black light safe hotel sheets. So he's not using million dollar words, but he's painting a really vivid picture with a very, you know, basic uh, vocabulary. And I, and I like the image, you know, this gives off. But How to Ace Your Comeback is about 
uh, a wrestler similar to, I guess, Randy the Ram from the movie The Wrestler. Although in this case, I think he's been retired for many years after having been a star in the territorial era, but is brought back to come out of retirement by a promoter in Idaho or Iowa, somewhere far, far away. And the promoter for this show gets some threatening letters from someone saying they're going to kill this wrestler if he gets into the ring. The the opening paragraph you read was perfect. He's like, I, I, upon reading that paragraph, I was like, oh, this is like, this is like if, if Hemingway wrote wrote a little wrestling story. Just yeah. The plain, the plain language is perfect. And, um, I, in addition to that, I really liked, like, the story hooked me really early, and I really liked the way, uh, Gibb writes his dialogue. Um, I think he does an ex exceptionally a good job with with with, with the, the way he writes dialogue i like i could i can imagine hearing these conversations happening seeing them on, on like a movie or a tv show or in, in a in a wrestling locker room or in a hotel room or whatever it's, I, it was it was uh the dialogue is excellent 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 and very 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 well done yeah it's a good uh, it, and you know it, it's a bit of a whodunit mystery uh with this threatening these threatening letters uh what is going yeah. to happen when the wrestler uh does get in the ring but even you know the the fish out of water aspect of the former wrestler now coming into a a world that has in many ways passed him by that being a pro wrestling locker yep. room I, you know, empathize with this a lot because uh, if you recall, I was an indie manager for many years, but there was a good uh, seven or eight year break where I was not involved in wrestling and I came back in 2015. And even that short period of time, wrestling had changed significantly and the way, you know, wrestlers sort of uh, carry themselves in, in dressing rooms and, and everything was different. And I really felt like a fish out of water. So here you get a good feel for someone who was, had been a star in the eighties or nineties now coming into a modern day dress dressing room and, you know, trying to figure out why these fucking kids are all just playing video games and not, you know, doing lines <laughs> or, you know, drinking whiskey out of uh, a shoe. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and so that plus the aspect of the, you know, there's a whodunit, uh, in that, uh, this wrestler may or may not be the target of an assassination attempt. And, uh, is it coming, you know, where's, it, where's it going to be coming from? So it's, it's a, it's a fun little read. And like I said, it's a work of fiction and it's, it's not using any real wrestlers, but it's set in the world of professional wrestling. And the other book, Living the Gimmick by Bobby Matthews, same thing. It's a fictional story set in the, uh, world of professional wrestling. Although in this case, it's very clear who uh, one of the characters is supposed to be. Uh, basically, in this case, it's a former wrestler who is now uh, who now owns a bar and is visited by uh, his longtime running buddy, who's now a major, major, major professional wrestling legend and superstar. Something happens to one of them very early in the book, and it now becomes, uh, yet again, a whodunit. But it's very clear that this legendary superstar is supposed to be Flair. And in many ways, the other person, even though uh, this person retired from wrestling, is modeled after some sort of Arn slash Tully hybrid, had yeah. they not stayed in wrestling. 
But, you know, he was very clearly, you know, second fiddle to the superstar wrestler, even when they were running buddies. And it's interesting because in this book and, and the author of this one, Bobby Matthews, is a former independent wrestler out of Alabama. As a matter of fact, I think I worked with him. Uh, a handful of times, perhaps at Wildside in Cornelia, Georgia. Here, there are a lot of situations where the wrestlers, even though they are fictitious and given fictitious names, you can sort of tell that they're modeled after a, a someone in yeah. particular or perhaps a combination. And, and in the book, he actually name drops several deceased wrestlers as well. And I think that's that's some sort of cop, not copyright, but some sort of issue where I guess if you're talking about someone that's still alive, you, you know, you you can't use their real name or their likeness. But if someone's deceased, you can. I know he mentions Danny Hodge, and I think Jack Briscoe. It's it's a a little bit of a longer book, a little more meat to it. But basically, after the incident happens to one of the two characters introduced in the beginning of the book, the other one goes to a. Uh, TV taping of uh, the big, you know, wrestling show and becomes embroiled in the whodunit. Yeah. What I found really interesting um, about these, these two selections uh, is that two of the m- main characters from both of the books uh, share some specific personality traits, shall we say. Yeah. And I think it's very engaging how these traits are dealt with differently in each of the books depending on the narrator and and the narrator's point of view who's doing the narrating um and it's so interesting to me because those you know you have those two points of view you get in in the real world when you have people uh either condemning or defending you know, whatever type of behavior it is. So it's very, I thought that was very interesting. Like that both of these books, you have those two different viewpoints, depending on who's telling the narration about something that happened, you know, 20 years ago and being guys on the road, you know, that was very, very interesting. Yeah. I I enjoy both of them a lot. And I think our listeners will as well. Uh, They're both, they're, they're set in the modern times, but in both cases, uh, many of the characters involved had been wrestling since the territorial days. So there, there's a lot of things that will ring true to our listeners. Uh, and both of them are pretty light reads. Um, the, the, you know, that's something you can take to the beach or on a plane yeah. and, and get through. So again, the first one is How to Ace Your Comeback by David Gibb. And it's available on Amazon. Or you can also visit aceyourcomeback.com to learn more about the book. Uh, And the second book, Living the Gimmick by Bobby Matthews, also available at Amazon. Or you can go to shotgunhoney.com to learn more about the author, Bobby Matthews, and some of his other books as well. Now, in a wacky coincidence, John, as we were uh, preparing for this month's episode, uh, Jonathan Snowden, who wrote the uh, fascinating Ken Shamrock book that came out a few years ago. Did you read that? Yes. It is one of the best biographies. It's an incredible biography. It is probably one of the most thoroughly researched books on someone who had time in pro wrestling that I've ever seen. Because, you know, John, you're probably the same way. When I read some of these wrestling books, 
I can tell that the wrestler is telling a, a fib or a tall tale or exaggerating or embellishing. And it's so blatantly obvious. And uh, in this case, you can just tell that Jonathan put so much effort into doing research to uh, try and verify and validate, uh, you know, some of the stories. Um, but Jonathan is collaborating with several authors, including Chad Dundas, who wrote a great uh, fictional book about uh, wrestling from the early part of last century. It's called Champion of the World, uh, another fiction book about wrestling that I enjoyed very much. But the two of them are collaborating on a project called The Territories, and it's basically a collection of stories set in a fictitious shared universe set in the world of professional wrestling in the 1980s. So it's stories by several different authors, but many of the characters appear in multiple stories and, and are, you know, and have the same, you know, sort of position. Uh, and I think it's actually going to be part of a larger project that where they will expand this world as well. So if that intrigues you, um, it's currently uh, available for pre-order on Indiegogo, but you can also check out Snowden's uh, publishing house, which is called Hybrid Shoot at hybridshoot.substack.com. Dot com to learn more about Snowden and Dundas's Dundas's collaboration on the territories. So yeah, all sorts of yeah. books, um, fictitious works of fiction set in the world of uh, professional wrestling have been coming out lately. Usually, we just get biography after biography after autobiography <laughs> after biography. So oh, yeah. this is a uh, you know something uh, a nice little change of pace. Yeah, nice for the summer. Yeah, summer read. Uh, well, uh, so, yeah. Somewhere in the city. Back of my neck looking yeah. dirty and gritty. <laughs> oh, is it ever? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, John, a few months ago, we talked about another wrestler who worked for Leroy in 1966 and is actually here uh, in the summer of 66, and that was Battleship Johnson. Now, he wrestled oh, yeah. for uh, six or seven months for McGurk. Then he had a handful of matches in Amarillo and a handful of matches for Goulas in 67. And as best as anyone could tell, that was the end of his wrestling career. Um, yeah. We pieced together a little bit of info about him, some of which came from uh, something that Jack Briscoe had written on uh, a message forum 15 yeah. or, or plus years ago. Uh, he was a commercial artist uh, who lived outside of Dallas, was believed to have been friends with Skandor Akbar, which does make sense because Akbar was a local strongman in and around uh, yep. Texas. Um, and that battleship just showed up to a wrestling show one day and they asked, and he's a, he was a big man. We'll get into that in a little bit. And they uh, sort of said, mm -hmm. you want to try this out? And he said, sure. And he gave it a try. He got a really nice push for McGurk in 66. Um, but then uh, he, you know, as the story goes, I guess he just realized it wasn't for him and he moved on. You know, we really didn't know a whole lot. In fact, we didn't even know his real name because newspaper articles, some of them said his name was Bob Johnson and some of them said his name was Dan Johnson. And even if we knew which of the two it was, there are a lot of Bob Johnsons and Dan Johnsons, even ones born in Texas who would have been in their early 30s in the mid 60s. There are still hundreds yeah. and hundreds. So we really didn't have a lot to go on. But a few weeks ago, a man named Rick Timmis reached out to me on Twitter. Uh, Rick said he had some more information about Battleship as he was a martial arts student of his in the 1970s, and the two became cool. friends. Okay. So, yeah, 
We've got some new info on Battleship Johnson, and, and armed with this info, John, you actually went ahead and did uh, some searches on your own, and were, were able, for the most part, to to verify the, the story. Um, like I said, yeah. this is from someone who reached out to me on Twitter who says he was a student of Battleship's. I have no reason not to believe him, but again, we we did enough independent verification on our own that I feel quite confident that everything we're about to hear that was said by Rick is the truth. Yep. So Battleship's real name was Bobby Lee Johnson, and he was born in Gainesville, Texas on April 4th, 1932. After his brief wrestling career ended, Bob was a sign painter and a commercial artist, as well as a martial arts instructor in Gainesville. Uh, as a matter of fact, he created a painting uh, for the Gainesville High School of their mascot, which is a leopard, that may still be displayed in the school today, hmm. which is pretty neat. Now, as for his martial arts studio, it was located behind his house, and he had a separate studio with weight equipment for powerlifting and strength training. Now, according to Rick Timmis, who was in his teens when he trained under Bob Johnson in the 1970s, Battleship could lift 250 pounds overhead with one arm. Jesus. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, that that's a lot. He, he said that basically Battleship had this homemade sort of dumbbell contraption with a couple of uh, pieces of metal uh, on each side. And that all told it weighed about 250 pounds and he could use his strong arm, which was his right arm, and he could lift it up over his head four or five reps without, uh, without breaking a sweat. Now, oh, Battleship thanks. passed away in 2002, just a couple of weeks shy of his 70th birthday. And John, like I mentioned, uh, Rick gave us some more info, including his parents' names and one known address. And with that info, you went to, I believe, Ancestry.com and got a little more info. So tell us briefly um, just the process you used to sort of verify all this stuff. And I think uh, we learned he may have been married. We learned he had a couple of... uh, minor run-ins with the law, but most importantly, um, we originally speculated that um, he had served time in the Navy um, or in the armed yeah. forces. And I think you were able to verify that. So so briefly tell our listeners, yeah. you know, what, what you found. Well, we were, from, from your source, we were able, uh, I think he identified Battleship's dad as going by the name VL, VL Johnson. Um, so I was able to use that to sort of narrow it down from the, the hundreds of, uh, Robert Bob Johnson's, uh, in Texas to, to one whose father's name was Verna L. Johnson, mother Edith M. Nelson. Uh, and that synced up with the, uh, the address that he gave. So that all worked out, uh, really well and also what i what i learned is his name you know was uh and i guess that fairly common in, in the south his name wasn't you know on his birth certificate or whatever his government name wasn't robert his, his bobby lee was his, his government name so bobby wasn't a nickname it was so all this time we were looking for bob or robert johnson we should have wasted for yeah bobby we wasted lee time we, were looking, yeah. we should just look for bobby lee so yeah and then also his bobby lee. his military uh info that you're able to find yeah, we were able to find that he enlisted on um, the 14th of October in 1950. He was discharged on um, the 14th of August, 1952. So even though it, he, I, 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 we were reading that he was in there up in like the mid-late 50s, only only appears 
from what I find thus far, is in there for two years. Yeah. So, well, uh, he, of course, may have stayed in Japan afterwards or gone back in later years. But uh, you said 1950, that would have been uh, shortly after he turned 18. So, again, yep. that all, yep. you know, that makes perfect sense. That all checks out. So I asked Rick about some of these stories that were used um, in, in uh, hyping Battleship for pro wrestling purposes. And in, in particular, um, uh, how he was skilled at breaking bricks with his hands. Uh, the story that one of his hands was twice the size of the other due to calluses and scar tissue from all the brick breaking. And that he was trained in a special type of karate known only by a select group of Buddhist monks in Japan. So I asked Rick about all three of these things, and, and here's what he said. Uh, first, could he break bricks with his bare hands? Absolutely, said Rick. In fact, not just bricks, but also cement building blocks. Rick said that Battleship kept a supply of bricks from the Ferris Brick Company outside his studio for this very purpose. So the Ferris Brick Company is uh, based in Ferris, Texas, which is a town just a little bit south of Dallas. And at one point, there were four different uh, brick manufacturing plants in the city of Ferris. Uh, it, huh. it was at one point the, the, the U.S. brick capital, the brick production capital of the United States. Oh, yeah. Was one of Battleship Johnson's hands twice the size of the other? According to Rick, no. However, okay. he did make a point to say that Battleship hands were huge. Uh, Rick himself huh. says he's six foot five, and he said Battleship's hands dwarfed his. Uh, he did say, though, that on both hands, Battleship's palms and knuckles were completely calloused and hard as a stone. Yeah. So there's a little bit of truth that not that one hand was bigger than the other, but the calluses and, and whatnot from all the breaking of bricks was true. Yeah. Wow. Now, huh. the third fact, well, the third uh, the third piece of information given in, in pro <laughs> wrestling did he learn a secret type of self-defense karate from Buddhist monks in Japan? Rick says no. However, he did study under Masoyama in Japan. Do you know who that is? I have no idea who that is. Oyama was a karate master who founded the first and the most influential style of full contact karate, Kyokushin. He huh. also devised the 100-man kumite, yeah, which is where a, a form of sparring where you basically go um, for one and a half to two minutes uh, against 100 different people. So you go one and a half to oh. two minutes each in a row against 100 different people, the 100-man kumite. And Oyama wow. was said to have fought live bulls. <laughs> As the legend goes, 49 of the bulls lost a horn to his judo chop. He chopped them so hard that the horn would just fly off the bull's head. And the other three bulls were allegedly killed instantly with one blow. Wow. And interestingly enough, Oyama is rumored to have dabbled in pro wrestling, coming to the U.S. Huh. in the mid-1950s with a student of Ricky Dozan's. Uh, and... He didn't really do a whole lot of wrestling. It seems he did mostly grandstand challenges. And if I'm to believe what I've read, the only notable pro wrestler who ever sparred with Oyama was George Becker uh, in Charlotte. Interesting. Wow. 
So yeah, so there you go. Again, Battleship Johnson was in pro wrestling for just a very brief period of time, but to this point in time, we knew hardly anything about him. We only knew what Jack Briscoe had said, and we knew the likely tall tales that were used to build him up in pro wrestling. But now, thanks to one of our podcast listeners, we know a little more about a little bit more Bobby Lee Johnson and the fact that of the uh, tall tales, some of them had some truth in them. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So a huge thank you to Rick for reaching out and giving us more information yeah, you, Rick. about Battleship Johnson. Um, but Rick wasn't the only person I heard from over the last month or so to offer some uh, uh, in-depth info or corrections about things we've talked about uh, in the past. My my friend Thomas Simpson, who promoted Omega Wrestling in the 1990s with Matt and Jeff Hardy and many others, told me that uh, Jim Crockett Promotions didn't have a company plan until the 80s. Uh, if you recall, last month we talked about how uh, Crockett took over Savannah from Georgia Championship Wrestling. Yep. And I, I speculated they probably flew the crew down there. Um, he didn't have a plane at that point in time. And looking at a map, Savannah is only about four hours drive from Charlotte. Hmm. So it very easily could have been part of the mid-Atlantic uh, driving loop. And Thomas hmm. also gave a little more info about the relationship between Dick Murdoch and Killer Brooks. Uh, we knew they were cousins, but we didn't know quite exactly which parents were siblings. And it turns out that uh, Dick Murdoch's mother and Killer Brooks's mother were sisters. Wow. We also heard from uh, our good friend Sparks on Twitter. His, his Twitter handle is Sparks Third Coast. Uh, he told us a little bit more about the uh, city titles in Gulf Coast, which we talked about last ah, month. Yeah. Um, for the tag team titles, they had jackets, which I had mentioned. But for the singles titles uh, for the different cities, um, they were trophies. So it weren't belts. They weren't jackets. Uh, the tag teams were jackets and the singles... Uh, titles were trophies. And with the tag jackets, the story went that if a team would simultaneously hold all five city championships, they would have gotten a $1,000 bonus. But that never happened. Uh Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I also, I wanted to correct myself on something I I said to you on the podcast. You were talking about El Mongol, who was Raul Molina from Georgia. And I, in my infinite wisdom, interjected and said that was also uh, Henry Peluso, who we've talked about before. And I was wrong. They are two different people. Uh, Peluso wrestled as Kubla Khan in a few territories Uh in the South around the same time that El Mongol was finishing up his career in Georgia in the early 70s. So that was my mistake. So my apologies to you, John. Oh, apology accepted. Yeah. And then also we mentioned Killer Brooks's daughter uh, had wrestled and I erroneously said her ring name was Terrific Tanya. Actually, it was Tantalizing Tanya. Oh, yeah. With a, so, that's, a, that's a big... Yeah. yeah. So thanks to everyone who corrected me. Uh, you know, as yeah. I say regularly, one of the, uh, you know, main things to learn from this podcast is that we're going to get things wrong and we're going to oh, yeah. admit it and we're going to correct ourselves oh, yeah. and we're going to move on. Well, when I say we, I mean me, because John, you were apparently error free because oh, no well. one, no one uh, uh, said anything about correcting you, just me. So good job. We'll see. We'll see how this month goes. 
Yeah, you never know. So, but again, you know, John and I are are learning many new things each and every month. And at the end of every episode, each of us will spotlight uh, one new thing. And we call it This Month I Learned. So, John, what did you learn this month? So, uh, a few weeks ago, I was watching, rewatching that uh, some of that Lipstick and Dynamite documentary, which has almost got to be almost 20 years old at this point, which is frightening. Uh, and one of my favorite people in that movie is the the, the female wrestler uh, Ella Waldeck. I love her voice. Uh, she has that sort of like cigarette smoker. It sounds like Dead Patty or Selma from The Simpsons. And her interviews, I just she has such charisma. Like everybody's talking about the crazy stuff that they did. Like, oh, I I, I had a great drop kick. And Ella, Ella Waldeck is just content to talk about how she was the only one who would do like a short arm scissor left. She's like, I just pick up the girls, didn't matter who it was, drop them wherever I wanted. Um, she just seems like such a, a cool badass. Um, and there's a bunch of wild stories about her life, both in and out of the ring. She talks about some of it in the documentary. Um, also one of the few women wrestlers to cross over into the world of roller derby, which is interesting. Um, but this month I learned that during the filming slash post-production of that documentary, Ella Waldeck discovered that she was the great aunt of singer, songwriter, musician, Nico Case, who just happened to be working on film for, or working on music for the film. Wow. Uh, and women's wrestling from that era, just even specifically to Ella Waldeck's life, there's a lot of lots and lots of unpleasantness and sadness and seediness and all sorts of not a lot of great stuff happening. So I thought it was so nice that there's something lighthearted and cheery to take away from this this era of women's wrestling, which a lot of it is just associated with the the you know the bad stuff. So it's so nice to hear like a lighthearted, cheery story from this. Uh, yeah, so Nico Case. The, the the great niece of Ella Waldeck. Yeah. Fascinating. So she's uh yeah. she's I guess the she's what they call indie rock these days. Indie rock, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Uh, all right. So I this month I've got two minor things I learned and, and there's oh. a little bit of a common theme. Um, now we talked previously about Frank Goodish and how his first pro wrestling match was as a quote unquote fan in the stands answering a grandstand challenge from Bob Roop in uh, East Texas in April 1974. Well, it turns out that Goodish wasn't the first person to answer Roop's challenge in Texas. Now, this was something Roop did pretty much everywhere he went. Um, I don't know that they used plant planted fans all the time, but they certainly did with Goodish, and they certainly did four weeks before Goodish when Roop faced a wrestler who had been a pro for a little over a year, but who had not appeared in East Texas before. So I think he was also presented as a fan in the stands, and that man was Stan Hansen. Wow. Interesting huh. that both Hansen and Goodish, you know, did, did that yeah. grandstand challenge for Roop, and then less, you know, within about six months, they're going to be teaming up in McGurk's yeah. territory. And we'll get to that when we cover the uh, latter portion of 1974 later on this year on the podcast. And speaking of Hanson, the other thing I learned this month, um, I always found it interesting, and we've talked about this before, but Hanson was the opponent for uh, the second pro wrestling match in the career of Jumbo Saruta. 
Saruta had worked a TV in Amarillo uh, that that weekend, and then the following week started on the road, and his uh, first house show match and his second match ever was against a man who he would wrestle hundreds of times over the course of his career, and that's Stan Hansen. Well, this month I learned Saruta wasn't the only Japanese superstar to have his second pro match against someone he would feud with much later in, in his career. Genichiro Tenru had his earliest matches in uh, East Texas in 76, 75 or 76. His second pro wrestling match was against Ted DiBiase. Huh. And of course, Tenru and DiBiase faced each other dozens, if not, you know, over a hundred times in uh, all Japan and later in war as well. So it's just fascinating to me. Like, uh, you know, when you see how guys like Backlund and uh, Iron Sheik and Flair were all rookies at the same time, it's just amazing that some fan at an AWA show in 1973 may have seen Bob Backlund wrestling against, you know, the Iron Sheik. And then, (laughs) you know... Ten years later, they're, you know, main eventing Madison Square Garden. That's just so yeah. cool to me how yeah, yeah. early on in people's careers they face each other. They face guys that will become their rivals uh, as main eventers later on. And such was the case with Hanson and Saruta. And this month I learned was also the case with Tenru and Ted DiBiase. So cool. Wow. Yeah. Now, next month on the podcast, John, we're going to look at the third quarter of 1974 in Leroy McGurk's Oklahoma slash Louisiana territory. Uh, Where have all the good tag teams gone? Yellow Belly feuds with Mantel, and a newcomer that I'm pretty sure all of our listeners stand for. Plus all our regular features. I'll try and stump John with some Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. John will buy me some shit off eBay, and we will share some things we learned this month. Now, mm-hmm. as always, you can find me on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. A lot of the things we've talked about, the YouTube videos, some newspaper articles, and also some uh, photos from John's collection will be posted to Twitter over the next few days. So be sure to follow me at Al Gets Wrestling. You can also follow my other account, Al Gets Baseball, and follow mm, along yeah. on my journey to visit all 30 major league stadiums this season. Uh, as of recording this, I'm at 17. Although later this week, I will be heading to Philadelphia and Baltimore for numbers 18 and 19. And then the week after that, I'm going up to New York where yeah, I will maybe. see the, uh, the New York Mets play the Braves, but I'll be joined for this Mets Braves game by my co-host. Indeed you will. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to have some fun because I hate the fucking Mets and I love the Braves. Uh, You, I guess, are sort of ambivalent about the Mets. You're a Yankees fan, but that doesn't mean you hate the Mets. So you'll, you know, so this will be interesting. So you're going to have to protect me if some riled up Mets fans, you know, want to start up with me uh, when they're losing. And and the way things are going, that's going to be a big series. So I'm excited, but I'm excited to see John uh, in person for just the second time. We got together last December, and now we're going to go enjoy a baseball game together. And I'm very excited. Yeah. So, John, uh, where can our listeners find you, and do you have anything going on? 
I have no, nothing to plug this month. Maybe next month. I've got some. I got some stuff I'm working on, but it's all. Uh, it's all. Uh, it, 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 there's some, there's some NDAs involved, um, and uh, you know, hopefully next month maybe I'll have more news on that. Um, nothing right now, but you can follow me on Twitter in the meantime, uh, at J O N underscore B O U C H E R on Twitter. Uh, I'm there. I'm there for you with your 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 wrestling wrestling content that that you, that you that you crave. Yeah. So you can find both of us on Twitter. You can also visit our blog at chartingtheterritories.com. And of course, this podcast comes out the fourth Thursday of every month. And to be the first to know when new episodes of Charting the Territories are available, you can subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. John, I hope you survive the heat wave going on in New York, or at least survive oh, long, yeah. you know, for at least make it two more weeks so I can see you and we can uh, have a beer, <laughs> a beer and a hot dog together and watch the Braves destroy the Mets. Yes, many beers, many beers, Al, many beers. Uh oh, all right. Well, good, good thing I, good thing I, I, I've got a hotel room within walking distance of City Field because I may need to stumble. Back to my room at the end of the night. But uh, yeah, yeah, thanks to all of our listeners. And again, thanks to everyone who uh, uh, gives us feedback, tells us how much they enjoy the podcast, or tells me how many things I got wrong and corrects me. <laughs> well, I, I joke, but I really, truly do appreciate everyone that reaches out oh, to us with uh, any and all feedback. And uh, we will see you all next month right here on Charting the Territories. See you next month, guys.